this morning, I'm going to be beginning a new series in Paul's letter. We call it a book now, but it really is a letter, or actually two letters that he wrote to the Christians at Thessalonia long, long ago. And we're going to be studying in this series that first of those two letters, what we refer to often as First Thessalonians. They were written to real people with real problems, real tensions, real tribulation and suffering. And the world was not very friendly to their faith in that time. Sounds a lot like ours, doesn't it? And I think as we go through this series, you're going to realize how apropos, how practical, how relevant this series really is to the times in which we live and seek to serve our Lord faithfully and follow him as did our brothers and sisters over almost 2,000 years ago. But I believe if we listen well, we will be able to learn to live today in a way that pleases God and especially when we keep in light of what is coming. So the subtitle of this series is Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. Paul talks a lot about the tomorrow, referring to the second coming of our Lord and what the Lord is prepared in the world to come. Our scripture reading is two this morning, just as, as this is an introduction. And I'm just going to read right now 1 Thessalonians 1 1. And then we're also going to read the Acts passage in Acts 17 1 through 9 a little bit later in the message this morning. Hear now with appreciation the word of God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, otherwise known as Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will never fade and perish. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Father, as we begin to, Lord, open up and seek to expound and understand and examine and take and draw from this fountain that it is part of your living word. Father, we pray that you will again help us, give us the enablement and the insight that only can come from the Holy Spirit who works in and through the word to bring about your purposes. Father, be glorified. And Lord, teach us today as we wait upon you and depend upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you've heard the expression often said by preachers, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. Because 
it then won't be. If you ever found one, if you and I join it, it's not going to be. Of course, we know there is no perfect church. And the reason why is because we all are flawed and we all are sinners in need of much grace. But interestingly, since local churches are made up of such human beings, flawed and, and marred, and yet saved by the amazing grace of God that rescues undeserving sinners, no church is, of course, as I was implying, is perfect. But there are some churches that maybe are a little more close to the ideal that's set forth in the New Testament standards given to us by the Apostle Paul and some of the other apostles in their giving and writing the New Testament books. And the church of Thessalonica, I believe, was one of those kinds of churches. It's almost like the churches of Revelation. You remember, if you read about those churches in the first, second, and third chapter of of the book of Revelation, you realize that there's something wrong with almost every one of them except for one. And seemingly, Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about that one church. He did a lot about the others. And we find that same thing happening a lot. If you read Paul's entire epistles and all the letters that he wrote to all these various churches, usually there's something that he's got to straighten out. There's a cro- something crooked that needs to be put straight. There's something going wrong or at least on the verge of going wrong or already full-blown house of fire that he's trying to put out. But that is not true for the most part, of the Thessalonians. There's, there are some words of encouragement and concern, but generally it's a very positive, these are positive letters built, sent to edify and build up and encourage them in their faith, especially in light of what they would be facing. The Thessalonians, though that is true, and that's good news for them, unfortunately their circumstances weren't that good news. As I've already said, They were living in a hostile culture. They were floating in a sea of what we might call religious pluralism in which any and everything goes except you can't say that what you believe in is the truth. you got to accept all religions as equal. And it was a time of great confusion. There was a lot of disillusionment. And there came to be persecution as the new church arose because it was talking of a different way. It was saying there is something that transcends all of the rest of this. There is something to live and die for that's worth believing in. By that point in time, the Romans, the Greeks had all pretty much even though they still may have gone through the motions, they didn't have any hope or trust in their gods. They knew they were not really going to be able to deliver them. And they were looking, the people of Thessalonia were looking for something more. Perhaps they had tried it to find it in Judaism. But Paul was coming to bring the message they needed. And today... I want to look at, as we think through this series that I think is going to be very relevant to where we are and some of the same issues that we're facing. I want to look at just three things in introduction of the series uh, today. The Church of the Thessalonians. That's, that's the exact expression that is taken from the text in verse 1 that I read. 
And interesting, it doesn't say the church at Thessalonia or Thessalonica. It says the church of the Thessalonians. That's unusual for Paul to say it that way. Uh, the church made up, called, the called out ones that are from Thessalonia. And as we look at this today, I want to look briefly just at the background. And then I want to look at the burden that Paul had for them. And then I want to look at the blessing that he gives them just briefly, okay? So there's your outline. All right, let's dig in. Let's look at the background. If you were to visit Thessalonica today and uh, you were had a tour guide or something, he wouldn't refer to it as Thessalonica. He would call it Thessaloniki. Uh, and before that, its name was Santoniki. Um, and, uh, but, but it even had an older name than that. Today, it's a very bustling city, the second largest city in Greece, about a population of about 200,000, or excuse me, around 300,000 now. Uh, and yet, it had, was a very ancient city. And if you were to go back, its original name wasn't Thessaloniki or Thessalonica. It was Therma. Because it was at the, at the, what would be called, later called the Gulf of Therma, Thermae, and it is a place where there were a lot of natural hot springs. And so it was the city that was built around all these thermal hot springs. And so that was its ancient name. And in 315 BC, it was renamed Thessalonica after the half sister of Alexander the Great. You remember when Alexander the Great uh, died and his empire was split? Well, Cassander was one of his generals and it governed that region and he named it after his wife, Alexander's um, uh, half-sister. When Rome later, um, several hundred years later in 168 BC, conquered the city, they made it the capital of the province, the Macedonian province. And in Paul's day, there were... 200,000 people living in Thessalonica. That's a lot of people in, the, in an ancient time. It was a very big, bustling, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, multicultural city. It was filled with Greeks. It was filled with Romans. It was filled with Jews. Large populations, all kind of diversity that was going on when Paul visited there. And it was his normal plan to go to larger cities and then hope the gospel spread out from there. Paul's commission always was to try to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He knew that. That's what God had told him to do. He was convinced of that. But guess where he often started? He often started where there were Jews that were having a synagogue. Because he knew the word of God was going to be read. And he could go there and interact and dialogue and talk with them and talk and point them to Christ and to the good news of the gospel. And so that's what is happening here. In the book of Acts, we learn how Paul and his companions founded the church of the Thessalonians, how this church got started. We learn that in the book of Acts. And, uh, but just before that, again, remember, Paul's already gone on one missionary journey, and he's uh, in Asia Minor, been visiting churches there, and he then gets this vision, he see a dream of the guy from Macedonia that says, come over and help us. And he's convinced that God has sent that to him, telling him, we got to get over to Greece. we got to get over to Macedonia and share the, take the gospel there. So he gets his buddies, he gets uh, Timothy, and he gets Silas, and off they go from Troas. And I believe I've got uh, a few um, uh, graphics here. I meant to bring my uh, uh, green pointer. But if you see way up there at the top, 
Uh, that uh, blue line there, Troas is below that, and they sailed up to that blue line to Philippi, to just below Philippi, uh, Neapolis, and then to Philippi, where you know about the Philippian jailer. That's their first place they started trying to plant a church and did with the help of Lydia and others. Uh, but that road is, is the Ignatius Way or, or the Via Ignatia. And uh, that was an ancient Roman road that connected uh, that, the, the westernmost uh, part of Greece all the way to Constantinople, what would become Constantinople, um, today Istanbul. And that road was a Roman road made to make travel very easily. And Paul tracked along that from Philippi and then came to the Gulf of Therma. And the next dot uh, in about the middle there, you can't see it, but you may be able to read, uh, uh, see Thessalonica there. And that's, of course, where he began to make dialogue and with, the, with the Jews in the synagogue and began to start spreading the gospel. In that context, uh, let me see the next graphic there. Uh, that's right. I knew I had one more there. That's uh, the old uh, Ignatian way there. That's the uh, old Roman road. What's left of it still today, 2,000 years later. And then one more graphic here. Uh, this just shows you uh, today and in, in today's um, Thessaloniki, there are all that is left of the, of the ruins. That's all they've, and look, all around it, completely surrounded by this metropolis. And yet there's the old Agora. There's the original Agora. That's where Paul would have gone. He would have gone there and, and dialogued and had conversations about the gospel with those in that day. Now, Luke goes on and explains this a little more detail. And that's where we're going to get to our second reading verse here that gives us some context. In Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, this is what we read. In Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now when Paul, excuse me, now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble that formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they have come here also. And Jason has received them. They were all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They were businessmen after all. Yeah. They were concerned, but not that concerned as long as they got their bribe. But you know what happened later? 
the, the brothers realize, whoa, this is really, really getting hot. This is dangerous. Paul, we've got to get you out of here. And so they basically jettisoned Paul, got him on down the road where he went on down to Berea. And Paul never made it back to Thessalonia in person. He never was able to come back, even though he wanted to and tried many times. But in God's providence, it didn't happen. So, now here's the question. What a short ministry. It says he was there just three Sabbaths. That doesn't mean he was only there three weeks. But he probably wasn't there much more than a month or more. There could have been other places. He could have been other places beside the synagogue, you know, just like meeting Lydia out by the the, uh, stream and whatever. He could have been doing a, a ministry all over the city. But it certainly wasn't long. A relatively short time that he was able to preach and probably doing so daily and dialoguing and building up this infant church, planning this infant church. And yet when you think about that, he's, he leaves it and never comes back. <laughs> What's the hope that that's going to turn into anything? Well, I'll tell you what the hope is, my friends. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Because in this same epistle... The gospel came not only in word, Paul says, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said, it came not only in word. You not only heard me tell you about Christ and tell you the gospel, but the Holy Spirit came with it. He says, in word, not only in word only, but also in power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Do we really understand that's our hope? Do we really understand that's the only reason why there's any point of being in business of sharing and telling and proclaiming the gospel? Because it's hopeless. You can't change anybody's heart. If you ever saved anybody, I haven't. Nobody's ever saved anybody save Jesus. We can't change another person's heart. We can't make them see what they cannot see. Sin causes us to be blind to the things of God. These things Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians are spiritually discerned. We cannot hope apart from the help and the work of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think we have things like concerts of prayer? We're saying, Holy Spirit, if you don't come and do this and conduct this and change people, us and others, there will be no change. There will be no church for the future. No matter what we do, how well we manage things and how well we plan or what kind of strategies we adopt, there will be none. It doesn't mean we don't do those things that I just said, but we better not be hoping in those things. Our hope is in the power of the ascended Christ who has sent the Spirit of God to make the Word effective. Otherwise, we're preaching to dead people. We might as well be calling the dead to rise because spiritually, that is exactly what has to happen. But because of the Holy Spirit, there was a church that Paul was able to write to and encourage. Now, secondly, let's look at the burden. What was burdening Paul? What was Paul concerned about? What was he passionate about getting across to these new believing friends of his in Thessalonica when he finally was able to write back to try to encourage them? When he wrote those two letters, what was he trying to accomplish? What was heavy on his heart? Well, the first thing, he wanted to assure his friends of his love and concern for for them. He wanted to say, listen, I know I had to leave under less than ideal circumstances. I know I had a rather hasty departure, but it wasn't because I didn't want to be with you. 
My friends and yours basically got me out of town because they were convinced I was going to be killed if I stayed there. I didn't have a choice about it. They took me with them forcefully in order to save and spare me. So Paul wanted them to know that. He wasn't running out on them. Secondly, he was also concerned because already people were coming in among the Jews and others, and they were attacking Paul's character, maligning him and Silas and Timothy, basically saying, you know what those guys are? They're a bunch of opportunists. They're there to fleece you. This is all part of a gospel gig that they've got going and they go around making you think that they really care about you and they really have something important to tell you, but they're really just trying to get your stuff. And Paul addresses that in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians that we'll see as we go on in this exposition. But then it was beyond that. It wasn't just to set the record straight and make sure they didn't misunderstand or think that he was up to somehow trying to use them for gain. But his burden went beyond that. He also especially wanted them to get a handle on one of the best parts of their new Christian faith. You know what that was? The great... And blessed hope of the coming of Christ. The scripture in Titus 2.13 says, Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You notice how they're both together? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. And he's coming back. That is... The blessed hope of a Christian. And Paul, though he had, in a short time, it's amazing. When you look back all the stuff he said, he actually grounded them pretty well in the faith. They were doing pretty well in their walk. Apart from the persecution, they needed encouragement. But they were, they were not getting heretical. They weren't like the Galatians forgetting and losing the gospel. They weren't near as in danger there of things that other churches were in danger. They weren't the, the absolute... Uh, cacophonous thing that was going on in Corinth and all the kind of uh, just amalgamation of wickedness and sin that was being tolerated in the church. It was none of that. None of that was going on. But Paul, even though they got a lot of the, of the doctrines, the important Christian doctrines, and they had them, but they, he didn't have time to talk about one of their greatest hopes. The great hope of the Christian of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the defeat of all of his and our enemies. He didn't have time to tell them about the last and the best of things. The best of things. That hope to know that, you know, what if the worst happens, guys? What if the worst happens? It's going to be okay. Death cannot keep you. And he spends this time and much of this letter in the next letter explaining these important last things to them. So that not so they could be eschatological, uh, you know, whizzes and make everybody impressed with how much they know about the second coming. No, so they could be encouraged in face of what they were having to deal with in the persecution and the death of their loved ones. And wondering what would happen. They didn't know. And so Paul is encouraging them. 
That was his burden. And finally, he was also concerned about some who were, not not most, but some were not respecting and honoring their God-given leadership. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, that was one of his burdens. He wanted that to get corrected too. But that being said, let's flip the coin around. That being said, those of us who are officers, pastors or chaplains, remember, we cannot and must not demand respect. We should command it by the way we live, just like Paul did. By the sacrificial love for God's flock, It's not something you can command. I mean, demand. It's something that hopefully comes natural because people know that you care. They know that you love them. Do you know that I love you? Do you? I do. Your elders love you. Your deacons love you. They care for you. So, we're going to dig into that. And that's one of the burdens concerned. But that's just had to put, throw that out there. It's not something, something hopefully we share in sacrificial ministry and love for each other. All right, finally, the blessing. The blessing. What blessing? Well, let's look again at verse 1-1. Look at that. Once again, same where we started off. Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The church of the Thessalonians. The church means called out ones, separated ones. The called out ones in that city that belong to God the Father and to Jesus his son are receiving here from Paul and his companions a benediction. A blessing, a word of blessing that Paul often gave to the churches. This is one of the most common ones that he gave. It's kind of shorthand. Sometimes he got more elaborate and just kind of like Pauline like went on and went on and, and, you know, did a lot of highfalutin, extra language and whatever. But this is just really straightforward. And it was so common that it almost became like just a greeting. It almost became just a way of greeting. But it really is a pronouncement of God's blessing. It's a blessing on them. The short blessing that Paul used to give his churches so often. But just because it's short, don't think it doesn't pack a theological punch. Because it does. It's very, very potent in what the truth that it's conveying. And what it's declaring to God's people. The New Testament... In the New Testament, this two-word blessing always occurs in the order that it is there. Grace first, peace second. Never the other way around. You can't flip them. You can't reverse them. Why? Why is that so? God's grace is the basis for and leads to man's peace. 
There is no peace for man if it is not first the grace of God that has come. You can't make your own peace. You can't arrange your own peace. It can only be done by God. And that you cannot command. You cannot demand. You cannot expect. You can only receive humbly. And so Paul says, I'm give, God gives you grace so that you may know peace. Peace that will pass all understanding. Peace that will keep you no matter what may come. Never think you're entitled to it, my friend. But be grateful that God has created because of what he's done in Jesus Christ, both grace and peace that is upon us. Grace that has come to us and a peace now that passes all understanding and will be with us until the end of our days and throughout all eternity. Paul's time in Thessalonica was brief. And surely, as I said earlier, how much could have gotten done, really? I mean, how much could you accomplish in such a short time? But you see, that would be to underestimate the faith of these young Thessalonican Christians, brothers and sisters. Their faith was anything but superficial. They were interested and eager to learn. And they believed the word that they heard as the word of truth. And they were acting on it and living in light of it. They were trying to apply it to their lives. And though Paul was forcefully evicted, so to speak, God was moving in a mysterious way. Doing his work in his way like he always does. I want you to listen to one quote here from John Phillips in his commentary on Acts. He says, the Holy Spirit showed Paul there was more than one way to evangelize the city. If he couldn't go back to the Thessalonians, to Thessalonica in person, he could write a letter. A new method of evangelism was born. Literature evangelism. Down through the ages, millions have been saved through the reading of these letters that we're going to be looking at. And millions more have had their faith strengthened. God knows how to overrule our mistakes. He knows how to get past bumps in the road. And he makes the very wrath of men, the psalm says, praise him. Even when men are trying to destroy. Oh, was Satan active here? Absolutely. Stirring up the Jews to get and try to basically get Paul thrown into prison or worse. And he had to leave, but the gospel didn't leave. The good news didn't leave. The grace and peace of Jesus remained. And these Thessalonians remained and were seeking to be faithful when Paul was writing to him. They got bombarded. They needed encouragement just as we do and will. But that's what happened. You see, God always, remember this. Listen, God always. Always, always, it's up to more than you and I can think or imagine. We always sell what he's doing short because we're short-sighted. We don't see. We just see our little portion of the vineyard, our little portion of the world, and we think God is not doing much because we don't see much happening in our lives or, or in our church or in some whatever. 
Actually, I do see him doing a lot of things in our church, in his church here. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes, but he's always working. He's always working in mysterious ways. Don't we sing that? God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. One day we're going to see. We're going to see the upper side, not the under. And we're going to say, wow, Jesus, you were doing all of that? When I thought you'd taken a vacation? We're going to just be so grateful, so filled with joy at what he does. Remember, he's always working. Paul probably thought, you know, well, I really thought we had a good start on that church plant, but it's probably been swept away. No, it wasn't. It was there. It remained vital and strong for many, many years. So come back as we begin this series. Come back and see how he may work in your life as we explore this letter to the churches or to the church of the Thessalonians. Amen. Father, I pray that again, each one here, then the sound of my voice, Lord, as we uh, dig into this letter today, uh, today and begin uh, this expositional series, I pray that you'll draw others, you'll invite others uh, to come and see what you might teach us, what you might do, what if we wait on you in faith and look expectantly to you, what will you accomplish? What will you show us? What will you do that we may not even recognize for a long time that you've done in our lives? Will you work your amazing and mysterious ways for your glory and for our good? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.